From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. that this book is about the process of discernment and hopefully is coaching kids and teenagers, people my age, towards a place where they can examine their relationship with technology and hopefully take some wise steps to make it healthier. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch. Amy Crouch is a student at Cornell University studying linguistics, English, and anything else she can fit into her schedule. She loves to cook, climb mountains, and chat about books. Andy Crouch is an author, speaker, and musician, and also Amy's father. And his work focuses on culture, creativity, and the gospel. He's the author of The TechWise Family, Culture Making, Playing God, and Strong and Weak. His work has been featured in Time, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and Lecrae's 2014 single, Nonfiction. We're talking today about a book that they have written together, My Tech Wise Life. And in this book, Amy Crouch wrote the chapters and Andy Crouch wrote responses to each of these chapters. Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And before we got on air, you both gave me permission to use your first names and to be a little less formal than sometimes is my style. And so I'm grateful <laughs> for that. And I'd like to start our conversation by asking you a question, Amy. At one point in the book, you take us to a moment in your late high school years when you were at a youth retreat and you're sitting on a stairwell in a beam of sunlight and you're reading your Bible and you're having a moment of 10 minutes of solitary time studying a psalm. And then you get up from that stairwell and from that positive ex experience and you rejoin the group and you realize, as you report in your book, My Tech Wise Life, that your experience of that 10 minutes was profoundly different from some of your fellow classmates at that youth retreat. Can you tell us a little bit about that moment and what that difference in experience told you? Yes. One of the things that I've discovered in conversations with my friends, my peers, my classmates, is how many of us have this deep fear of being alone and of sitting in silence. And this is not obviously a completely new problem, but it's something that became, that was very clear to me during this moment at the youth retreat. As you say, I was really having a sort of beautiful moment of silence by myself during this time. And when I came back and talked to some of my friends about the experience, I found that they were deeply upset by it. They were saying things like, 
all of my most intrusive and painful thoughts were rushing in. Everything I'm afraid of, everything I'm insecure about just flooded my mind as I was trying to sit in silence. And for so many of my peers, this time of sitting alone in contemplation was actually a time when very deep fears were rushing in and consuming them. I don't think that we can blame this entirely on technology, but I do think that it's important for us to consider how right now we're very much living in a world where distraction is consuming our lives, where moments of silence are disappearing to the point that those fears, those insecurities, that deep discontent can get pushed down by the distractions of our daily lives, only to resurface when we finally have a moment alone. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, what your friends said to you was basically as soon as they stopped being distracted and busy, they were flooded with terror. I mean, is that too strong a word? No, I think that's a very appropriate word. And so if we're going to look at this terror, we might want to begin to explore some of where this terror arises from. And I I want to bring you, Andy Crouch, into the conversation because you wrote a book that looks at the way that technology is distracting us. And in some ways, this second book, My TechWise Life, is an outgrowth of that. But you made an observation about midway through this book that really stopped me in my tracks. You talked about the iPod and the design of the iPod, and even the name of the iPod. And you explored what it would be like if we didn't call it the iPod, but rather the WePod. And so I want to ask you about that. So first of all, what Amy just said was that when a person really was alone with themselves, the primary I moment, they were terrified. And yet we've got this little device that is designed to make us isolated. I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Isn't this ironic? I I think that there's something going on with technology, and I think almost everyone feels it, that the very things that were designed to make our lives better are actually somehow producing almost the inverse, the, the reverse of what was intended and what we expected when we bought them. And I think this individualized experience that has been the main selling point of what sometimes is called personal technology, right? That it's technology for you, singular. The genius of Apple in realizing we could name our computer the iMac, and then we have the iPod and the iPhone. And it did, you know, refer partly to internet as well. But there's no doubt that especially in a Western individualized culture, putting that I in front of things says, this is just for you and giving you earbuds that you can plug into your ears so you'll hear music that no one else will hear. You would think this would create an amazing kind of personalized, customized experience. And that's, I think, why we buy these things and why we are drawn to them. But it also cuts you off from other people and maybe even in a really surprising way cuts you off from yourself because it it seems to me that, Amy, what you experienced compared to what your friends experienced was they were actually plunged into a world of, or a few moments, not really a world, a few moments of solitude and found themselves there without any support system to handle (laughs) what it is to be alone, which is hard for all human beings. And our devices actually leave us completely unprepared for these moments. And if we had instead said, no, we don't want iPods, we want WePods, we want things to help us connect with one another. Maybe we even want technology that helps us have rhythms of engagement and disengagement of activity and solitude and quiet. We could have designed it that way, but we didn't. (laughs) Does that make sense, David? I, I just think we've ended up 
almost with the opposite of what we wanted. We thought we'd be less bored. We're actually more boreable. We thought we'd have less work to do. We actually feel more busy than ever. It's just so interesting how technology has played out as it worms its way into our lives. It does make sense. And for those that have just joined us, let me make sure that they're aware that this is Things Not Seen. And I'm David Dalt, and I'm speaking today with Amy Crouch and her father, Andy Crouch, about their recent co-authored book, My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. And so, Amy, I want to take a step back for a moment and talk about the context out of which this book arises. You report at several points in the book, My Tech Wise Life, that you were raised in a home that was not necessarily anti-technology, but was very cautious about technology. And you report that there was a, a moment where one of your friends in school said, I'm on Facebook now, but that was not an experience that you had until much later. And other other peers would get into various technologies or various platforms, and you were introduced to those much more slowly. And I want to ask, first of all, about the pushback you got from your classmates and from your fellow students and from those that were your age who were entering into these relationships with technology much more early. What was it like for you to be the one who was on the outside looking in to this culture of technology? Yeah, the word pushback is is interesting because I almost don't feel that I necessarily got pushback as much as just bemusement. I feel very fortunate that I did not experience bullying. I don't ever remember people making fun of me because I didn't share these experiences. Instead, what I remember is my peers and my friends and my classmates, they were just confused because for them a kind of technology-saturated life was the only one they knew. And so I don't know if I necessarily felt, felt that people were being cruel or unkind to me, but I did absolutely sense that there was something about the way my family was living that was very hard to comprehend for some of my, you know, dear friends and peers. And what I will say is that honestly, from the sort of outside looking in, the world of technology, it looked mixed. I could totally see there were some things that seemed really fun. You know, fun video games that you'd play with your friends, even enjoyable aspects of social media. And yet at the same time, even at a very young age, for a lot of my classmates, it looked like technology wasn't making their lives better. For instance, social media, which a lot of people my age were getting around fifth grade, sixth grade, it really looked like a job. People were trying so <laughs> hard to get as many followers as they possibly could. They would get so nervous about how their profile appeared to other people. And so I would say that from the outside looking in, I definitely didn't think, oh, everything in my life would be better if I had more devices to use. Instead, I saw this world, which obviously had some advantages, but also didn't seem to be making my classmates as happy as perhaps those devices intended. And Andy, I want to flip this question around for you as well, because you and your spouse made a choice as parents to have a home that was set up this way where technology was not forbidden, but it was de-emphasized. It was devalued. 
when you had a computer, it was accessed as a communal computer, not as a private computer. And I'm wondering, did you get pushback or commentary from other parents or from other adults who looked at the way that you were choosing to raise your children, you and, and your spouse, and to make the, the same kind of comments that Amy has said of either bemusement or confusion or resistance to that kind of approach? Yeah, I don't remember too much direct resistance. I do remember, I, I think maybe in every society, it's hard to be different. And we could definitely feel that we were different. And we could feel the friction of that, you might say. Not that it came across in a lot of active resistance, especially from other parents. I think for me as a parent, the most difficult thing was really seeing the challenges of other kids coming into our home and not knowing what to do. (laughs) I was more of an issue with our son. So Amy has an older brother, Timothy. He's three years older than her. And there's a stage in boys' lives now, maybe seven to 10, maybe longer on both ends, where the main thing that they do is play video games, most boys these days. And so he would bring friends over from school Uh, wanting to have fun together. But the only way this friend would know to have fun was to find the video game and play something together. And we didn't have video games ever. (laughs) And our son was perfectly happy at home on his own without video games or uh, 99% happy, I would say. But when his friends came over, he had no idea as this little third grader of how to propose anything else to do. And it would be these very awkward interactions that I just had to let him work his way through And many of those friends didn't want to come back because they were terribly bored. (laughs) So as a parent, I think it was less the pushback from other parents and more seeing, oh, this is definitely introducing for both of our kids a kind of a degree of difficulty in just day-to-day social life that that required some courage and some fumbling and some uncertainty to figure out how to get through. And it's hard to watch your kids go through that, even though... We were very convinced, and our own children now would say that these were the right choices, but it just makes it harder in the short run. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch. Amy Crouch is a student at Cornell University studying linguistics, English, and anything else she can fit into her schedule. She loves to cook, climb mountains, and chat about books. Andy Crouch, her father, is an author, speaker, and musician, and his work focuses on culture, creativity, and the gospel. He's the author of The TechWise Family, Culture Making, Playing God, and Strong and Weak. His work has been featured in Time, The Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Today we're talking about their co-authored book, My Tech Wise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. Amy Crouch wrote the chapters and Andy Crouch wrote responses to each of those chapters. We'll continue our conversation after a break. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, 
BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Amy Crouch and her father, Andy Crouch. Amy is a student at Cornell University studying linguistics, English, and anything else she can fit into her schedule. Andy Crouch is an author, speaker, and musician whose work focuses on culture, creativity, and the gospel. Today we're talking about their co-authored book, My Tech Wise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. Amy wrote the chapters, and after each chapter, her father, Andy, wrote responses. Andy, I'd like to ask you a question about a comment that you make in one of your responses to Amy's chapters about midway through the book. You say to Amy, okay, now we've discovered that this book, which is called My Tech Wise Life, you say, we've discovered it isn't really about technology, but in (laughs) fact, we're getting at something deeper. And I'd love for you to share with my listeners what it was that you and Amy discovered in that moment that you were really writing about in this book, My Tech Wise Life. (laughs) Yes. Yes. The book certainly starts with the challenge of making sense of all these devices that have suddenly appeared in our homes. And, And from Amy's point of view, doing that as a kid growing up, But I realized, even when I was writing the earlier book that led to this one called The TechWise Family, that really the things we're confronting when we try to figure out when should we have our screens on? When should we uh, have the electric lights on? When should we get in the car? When should we go for a walk? These are actually questions that do involve technology, but they're really, I think, about what is it to be human? (laughs) What is it to be a person? And maybe more particularly what is it to flourish as a human being and as people and as families. So I have come to think that all these questions that present themselves through the screen, as it were, or come to our attention because of the new device that we've brought into our home, to answer those questions, we're not going to be able to answer them just by looking at kind of the instruction sheet for the device. (laughs) We're going to have to actually ask, what do I believe a good human life is characterized by? What do I believe a family is really for? In the case of kids as they're growing up, what do I want my life to look like? What do I want my friendships to look like? And those questions you can't really answer in the terms of technology. So this book is really a book about what is it to be human and how do we figure it out? And why don't we Why do we end up making choices that don't help us be human? That's like the weirdest thing, right? (laughs) We are human. We want to be fully human. And yet we find ourselves in these situations, often aided and abetted by our devices, where we find ourselves feeling like I'm not really living the life that I'm made for. So that's really, I think, the, the underlying theme of Amy's writing and my writing. Well, and Amy, as you hear that response, I'm wondering, because I I would imagine that many of your classmates, either in high school or now in college, 
maybe some of them who are studying philosophy will kick back and say, I wonder what the properly led human life is. But when you hear your father, Andy, describe the project that you worked on together in this way, does that sound right to you? Did you think that you were working on the sort of deeper questions of what it meant to be human? Or what did you think that you were writing about when you started this book? And I guess, did it change by the time you were done with the book? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to hear that dad and I are on the same page because (laughs) what he says is right. This is a book about how to be human. And as you point out, that is not exactly a brand new question. And I do have some philosophy major friends who are literally studying what does it mean to live the good life. And so this book is not necessarily about providing a nice pat answer to the question of what does a good life look like? But I think that in writing this book, the title of the book is My Tech Wise Life. But I really think that as I wrote, it was the wise life, not so much the tech that, that was really concerning me. Because Ultimately, as new and strange as many of our devices and technologies are, we as people, as humans, are always going to be dealing with new and unusual technologies, changes to the way that we live, the way that we process the world. And we will always, I think, need wisdom to respond to those changes. We will need to have the capacity to discern the ways in which we are, as dad says, living in a more fully human way and the ways that devices are making us less human. And so I think that this book is about the process of discernment and hopefully is coaching kids and teenagers, people my age, towards a place where they can examine their relationship with technology and hopefully take some wise steps to make it healthier. Yeah, if I could could add, I think what you said is very true, David, that we often think of these questions as being for philosophy majors <laughs> and philosophers, maybe. And that doesn't sound like most of us. Most of us, uh, I, I found philosophy too hard in college. It was <laughs> the thing I did that I thought I cannot do this. And yet, I think that these questions are actually very live, especially for people Amy's age right now, because we've actually introduced some massive disruptions into the experience of being human in the last, really in, in, in Amy's lifetime, in the lifetime of a teenager, that have unsettled a lot of the old answers about what a good life is, and, and also that are not working out very well. We're seeing really dramatic increases in the last 10 years in anxiety and depression. These are highly centered in the in the young people who got devices in their middle school years. And so it's not working very well. And so even though there's no uptick in people signing up for philosophy classes, as far as I know, <laughs> there is like a huge re-examining of this question, are we really living the kind of life we were meant to live? So it also presents itself in very urgent ways in the life of all of us, I think, as we try to figure out how to live with all this new stuff. Now, I want to follow on to that because in talking about this kind of uptick in negative thinking and in some cases self-harm, and you talk about that in, in the book, My Tech Wise Life, I, I want listeners to be clear that 
at least my takeaway was that you weren't necessarily blaming technology, like technology is not the devil that has come in that has caused these things, but rather technology has exacerbated some problems that are already there and in some ways made more transparent the kind of disconnection and negative thinking and self-esteem issues that have been part of our culture for a while, at least here in America. Now, that's mm. my takeaway. I want to make sure that I've read and heard correctly what you're saying. Is that correct or would you say it in a different way? That's a really good question. I'm interested in Amy's thoughts, but I'll jump in <laughs> uh, and say that fundamentally being human is hard and has always been hard and it's always been a mystery and, and people have always had to search and ask, is the life that I'm living the life that really is life? That's not new and that didn't arise with technology. And I also definitely think that when we talk about technology, we often talk about the most recent things. So the, the screens are the most recent thing, especially the, the small glowing rectangles that are in our pockets now. And so people often are fixating on that and saying, gosh, is this causing more depression? I think there is some extent to which it is. But it is also true that the, all these trends were in place before the iPhone appeared, in my view. I do think something happened about 100 years ago <laughs> that is different. Not that it changed the human condition, but I do think when we introduced what I would very broadly call devices, which are things that work on their own, that take our place in a way, that do what we used to do in the world, that relieve us of a lot of burdens, but also ask very little of us and leave us without that much to do except just be entertained. So we used to spend a lot of time with animals, for example, with other creatures that we were responsible for and had to care for. It was a lot of work. And suddenly you've got a whole generation that arises and they may never have, I almost guarantee they've never milked a cow. Amy's never milked a cow. <laughs> they've probably never had a large animal to care for. Maybe they had a pet. But there's this detachment from the natural world. There's this detachment from human effort, from physical activity. We're now extremely sedentary. And that all happened before the iPhone. That happened even in some ways before the television. So the media devices are just one piece. But I do think, even though the human condition hasn't changed, I do think about 100 years ago, we decided we wanted our lives to be easy. And we discovered there were ways to use the world to make things easier. And I think the way that's played out is that we've discovered this is actually a real detour uh, from the true human life. And in that sense, I think there is something new that's happening. I don't know, Amy, do, what do you think? As, as someone much yeah. much earlier in your life and much more immersed in, in all these devices. Yeah, I think the research on this is quite helpful. So there's, at this point, a very well-attested correlation between high screen use and poor mental health in the literature around teenagers and use of screens. And in the research we did for this book, our data absolutely backed that up with higher screen users being about twice as likely to, for instance, agree with the statement, I hate myself as lower screen users, also about twice as likely to have experienced suicidal thoughts. And I'm not a sociologist, but from my understanding of the research, this is quite a well-documented effect. And you could you say, David, is, the, is technology the devil? And I don't think we can say that. But I think what the research shows is this correlation, not causation, which indicates that there's a whole kind of relationship that's 
teenagers have with technology, which is embedded with unhealthy behaviors. Maybe it's the, that by spending more time on social media, you feel worse about yourself and thus you feel more depressed, but maybe it's that because you have deep insecurities and you don't feel you have anyone to turn to, you then spend more time on social media. Or it can also be about, for instance, sleep and exercise, which all go down as we use screens more. And so I don't think we can say technology is destroying teenagers' mental health, but I think we can say that right now, the ways that teenagers are using technology, broadly speaking, are not contributing to mental health. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guests today are Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch. We're talking about their recent book, My Tech Wise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. I want to stay with this line of conversation just for a few moments more because you've already begun to talk about it, Amy. The data backs it up. Now, when somebody comes to your book, they may think at first that this is going to be just a series of kind of personal stories and anecdotes about your childhood and being raised with a technologically suspicious family. But <laughs> but there but there's a silent partner in the writing of this book and that's the Barna group. And I wonder if you would just take a moment and tell my listeners when we say the Barna group who are we talking about and what do they do? Yes, the Barna group is a research group primarily focused on religious sociological research, seeing how patterns of faith affect other ideas and behaviors. And they have kindly partnered with us on this project to survey teenagers all across the country. I believe it was about 1,200 teenagers all in all, and to ask all kinds of questions about relationship with technology and And how that intersects with, for instance, your connection to your community, your connection to faith, especially kind of household dynamics. And when we're talking about this and the results that they found, one of the ways that comes out in the book is you and your father, Andy, will be talking about a subject in a chapter. But then in the midst of that chapter, some of that data will bubble up. There'll be pullouts and (laughs) and picture pages that that really demonstrate the fine-grained detail of what you're talking about. And I wonder, Andy, as her father, as a person who gave thought to how you wanted to raise your children, as you began to look at the data... Did you find that the data confirmed some of your choices in being a parent, or were you surprised by some of the data that you saw? There is some of the data that's actually pretty encouraging. And I think about, we've done two rounds of research on this with our friends at Barna, and the first was for my book on families. And I think the encouraging thing is actually how many families are trying to be intentional about lots of aspects of their lives, more than I expected, actually. I was really encouraged <laughs> at how many families say that they aspire to sit down to dinner most nights of the week. I'm worried that's eroding in American life, but at least the people we surveyed indicated a majority of families aim for that. And I think that's one of the most important things you can do as a family. So there's, I think, a very encouraging finding, Amy could talk more about it, but is that kids themselves want limits on their own t- tech use. We sometimes think of the kids as being the ones who are pushing for unlimited access with their parents (laughs) resisting. And it's actually way more complicated than that. 
A lot of parents don't set limits. And even kids whose parents have given them unfettered access, even a lot of them want limits. They set limits for mm -hmm. themselves. So over 50%. Yeah. So over half of kids whose parents actually say, hey, here's the phone, do whatever you want. <laughs> I can't handle this. And they start to figure <laughs> out what the limits are that are appropriate for them. So these were actually very encouraging findings. I think that on the other side, when it's going wrong, it's really distressing how much is being lost from family life and what a significant proportion of families say these devices really are interfering with our ability to spend time with one another. I don't know, Amy, you should talk about the most interesting thing, which is the gap between what kids say they want to do and what they actually do. That finding is really kind of jaw-dropping to me. Oh, yes. This was a great set of questions, which I did not come up with. It was the, the wonderful team at Barna. Um, so we asked teenagers a series of questions which basically contrasted physical, quote-unquote, real-world activities with virtual activities. For instance, going on a walk versus sitting and looking at your phone, talking to a friend in person versus calling them. And first we asked, which would you rather do? Would you rather play Frisbee with a friend or play a video game? Those kinds of questions. And overwhelmingly, the response was, I would rather do that embodied thing, take the walk, be outside, talk to my friend in person. But then when we ask, what do you actually do? The response is <laughs> completely flip. People say, actually, I'm more likely to text my friend than talk to them in person. I'm more likely to stare at my phone than to go outside and look at a tree. And I, I think this is so true and it really speaks to something that we all feel, which is that the life that the kind of screen obsessed lives that a lot of us live, it's not really what we want, but it just is the default way. And so I think that people my age are not happy about what technology is doing to us, but we're just missing that piece of how we can take action against that. And Amy, as we're moving towards our next break, you've just laid out a problem where someone is saying, I wish I was doing this, but I recognize instead that I'm doing this. And when you said that, I was hearing the Apostle Paul saying, the good that <laughs> yes. I would do, I do not do, and the evil that I wouldn't do, I find myself doing. And so as we're moving towards break, uh, can you give our listeners who may suddenly feel themselves in the spotlight of that observation, could you give them something concrete that you learned in the process of writing this book? Just one simple concrete step that they could do when they find themselves saying, I wish I was doing this less, but I find myself doing this more with technology or whatever it is that's got them trapped in that cycle. Is there one or two concrete things you can suggest as we move to break that will maybe help our listeners? Oh, that is a great question. A very general tip is talk to somebody about it right away, because if anything else, what we learned from this data is that a lot of people are feeling the way you are. A lot of people are struggling with technology and it is really difficult to resist the power of our devices on our own. But somehow reaching out to someone and saying, hey, I cannot get started on my work because I keep getting distracted by email or I feel like I'm addicted to Netflix. Just reaching out and saying that and asking someone to help you set behaviors to combat it, I think that can make a big difference. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch. Amy Crouch is a student at Cornell University. She's studying linguistics, English, and anything else that she can fit into her schedule. Andy Crouch is an author, speaker, and musician, and also Amy's father. His work focuses on culture, creativity, and the gospel. He's the author of The TechWise Family, Culture Making, Playing God, and Strong and Weak. His work has been featured in Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. Today we're talking about a book that they have authored together called My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. Amy wrote the chapters and Andy wrote responses to each chapter. We'll be talking more about the book when we come back from our break. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these interviews and conversations, all there for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch. Amy is a student at Cornell University. She's studying linguistics and English and anything else she can fit into her schedule. Andy Crouch is an author, speaker, and musician. He's also Amy's father. His work focuses on culture, creativity, and the gospel. Today, we're talking about a book that they've written together called My Tech Wise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. Amy wrote the chapters, and her father, Andy, wrote responses to each chapter. One of the things that delighted me when I came towards the conclusion of your book, My TechWise Life, is that after looking at all the different ways that technology has begun to affect our lives, and as Amy was saying right before the break, trap us in these cycles of distraction, you raise a concept that just floored me, and that is it's not to try and resist distraction, but rather to try and be distracted from the distraction that captivates us so much. And that sort of bit of mental gymnastics just delighted me, but then not only was I delighted with that, but I was especially intrigued by where you landed. The answer wasn't to find a better app. The answer was Sabbath. And I would love to hear about Sabbath and how the loss of Sabbath and maybe its recovery could be an answer to some of these problems that you've identified in my TechWise life. And so let me start with you, Amy. Tell me about Sabbath and how it can be useful for us. I am so glad you are asking this question because honestly, of all the chapters in the book, the chapter on Sabbath is maybe the one that I'm most proud of. My family, we are a Christian believing home and my parents from very early on were teaching Timothy, my brother and me about the Christian faith and bringing us up in it. And one of the most valuable kind of practices that we did together as a family was this practice of Sabbath. Every seven days, taking a day of rest, both from work and from our digital devices, and just 
just resting in the glory of God's creation. And I am now a college student. I don't need to, my parents can't really order me around anymore. But to this day, I keep a Sabbath every single week, even as like a busy student. And I think that Sabbath has the power to transform our lives. I could speak so much about this, but I think what I will try to highlight is the power that Sabbath has to give us a right understanding of ourselves. The world of screens and also often the world of work, especially for me as a college student, it's all about you. My devices, especially social media and algorithms, are all around creating the most streamlined and addictive user experience for me based on my preferences, my behaviors, and my work as good and excellent as it is to be a student, it's very achievement centric. And when I go about my day-to-day life, it's very easy for me to start believing that what I do is the most important thing. And that if I get a B on an assignment, or if I turn something in late, then the world has ended. And the great good news of my Christian faith, and also the great gift of the Sabbath, is saying, in fact, the world is not about me. And that is such a great gift. The Sabbath says the world is a good world created by a good God, and we don't have to do anything, or rather, our efforts are not what keep the world turning. And so taking this weekly Sabbath, a day away from the beeping of my my screens and the stresses of my student life is a reminder for me that I can rest in the goodness of the God that I worship rather than trying to trust to my own self to be saved. And Andy, as you're hearing Amy say this, one of the things that she lifted up was the fact that your family was very intentional about this all through her childhood. But I wonder, as you're hearing her say this as a father, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? (laughs) Uh, so encouraged. This was a very fun book to write because we're watching our own child, in this case, our daughter, though happily our son, I think, could have written a similar book, own not just what we did, but why we did it. So I think what can go wrong in homes that try to be very intentional is that it can become legalistic, right? It can, and and certainly I've met people who grew up in very Sabbatarian communities, Christian communities, especially from an older generation where it was a a very strict set of rules that were observed very faithfully, often for very good reasons, but were inherited by the next generation as basically just a legalistic practice. So what actually is most encouraging to me is not so much that Amy is off to college and still against all odds at a place like Cornell University taking a whole day a week not to work, which I guarantee (laughs) you very few Cornell students think that way. Alas, Uh, yes. (laughs) Alas, but it's actually that she's, she's grasping what was behind it for us and what is behind it in the Christian faith, which doesn't have anything to do with a set of rules about what you do and don't do, except insofar as those practices actually open up the deeper truth. So this has been the best part of this whole project is hearing my daughter not just get the practices, but the reason and the gift that's behind them. 
I'm happy to hear you admit and talk about the downside <laughs> of something like an intentional oh, practice, yeah. that mm-hmm. it can devolve into a kind of legalism. And so let me ask about that, because sometimes one of the ways that parents will respond to like over technology use is to set very rigid rules and to set very rigid boundaries. And what I'm hearing in your response, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I heard in your response is that rigid boundaries are not necessarily the way to go, but rather to have a well-explained intentionality that is honored not as a set of boxes to check. And Amy, at one point, even in your book, you talk about this in terms of Sabbath, that you're not looking to say, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, but rather to be open to the moment of relationship. Now, when I say that word relationship, am I getting at what you're trying to cherish here in this Sabbath practice, or have I missed the mark and you'd say it in a different way? I think that is exactly right. I'll I'll let dad react too. But what I would say is, as I've been doing the research for this book and writing it, I've met a lot of other people whose parents had various restrictions or limitations or disciplines around technology, even practices which were similar to what our family did. But a lot of them just didn't get those restrictions. A lot of them felt like their parents were just giving them these arbitrary rules that they just had to follow but didn't really care about. And so once these peers of mine left their families and went off to college or to work or whatever, they immediately abandoned all of the family restrictions and practices. And I think the number one difference between my family and the families of of some of these peers that I've met is that in our family, my brother and I were always given why. My parents I think I can confidently say never just told us a rule and said, that's it. You have to do this without an explanation. Now, my parents, like they, they certainly did tell us what to do because we were kids, but we understood why mom and dad were giving us these restrictions on technology, why they valued these family practices. And mom and dad would like invite Timothy and me into them saying, we have the opportunity to cultivate a healthier relationship with technology and we can take all of these disciplines together. And I'm grateful for the rules and the disciplines. Those are really valuable. And I still to this day have them in my own life, but I don't think any of them would have stuck if my parents didn't give me that explanation of why they were important to us and didn't invite me into the process of of making those decisions. And Andy, if you also want to reflect on this connection between Sabbath and relationship, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think it's so important. Anytime we're giving something up, it's human nature. They say nature abhors a vacuum, right? I think human nature abhors like a cultural vacuum. We, you can't really tell us to stop doing something unless we are starting something else. And so if you're giving something up, it has to be in, in exchange for something else. And the, what you're exchanging it for, what are the limits for? They're, they're actually for flourishing. They're for teeming to use that old word used in the first page of Genesis, the earth was meant to team and boundaries are actually not incompatible with teeming and flourishing. They're actually essential for it in a way, because otherwise the world just gets overgrown with weeds, you could say. And so the gardening of our lives, the setting of certain boundaries and limits is actually to allow a lot more flourishing to happen. So when in our 
family practice of Sabbath. We wanted our kids to remember that as a day when mom and dad were around, were available, when we did things together, not a day of isolation and kind of enforced inactivity and boredom, but actually a day of much greater creativity as a family than we might maybe had time for in the busyness of the week. More intense conversations and more fun and games and better food. And and so I think our kids ended up feeling like, oh, this is the best day of the week. Even though there there were a bunch of things we weren't doing. Yes, because in order to make room for the flourishing, you have to say no to the more utilitarian things, let's say, or the, the things that are merely useful, like knowing what's on the news and answering email. And all of that has to be part of our life. And it is part of our work as human beings. But there's something more. And Sabbath is this wonderful way of saying every single week, there's something more than just getting through, getting by, handling the, the sort of challenges of life, the work of life. There's a, an abundance that's available to us. And I understand why parents are often very worried for good reason about what access to technology will do for, to their kids. And so they set limits out of a kind of fear of what could be or of what's turned out to be the case for their kids. But the more you can reframe the limits in terms of the flourishing that we're all seeking, and the less that it's about limits just on the kids, rules for the kids with a different set of rules for the parents, and more something that we're actually all doing together, I think we would find a lot more openness to some good boundaries if there was flourishing within those boundaries. Yes. I honestly feel like in my life as a student, I the Sabbath is a lifeline for me. Literally, it'll be Wednesday and I will think to myself, oh, my Sabbath is coming soon. I'll like count down <laughs> the days. And I can tell you, man, I the amount of peace and joy that just knowing that I'm living in a rhythm of work and rest gives me is amazing. And I would honestly say it's one of the things that has kept me sane throughout college. Sane and Christian. (laughs) If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guests today are Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch. They've co-written a book called My Tech Wise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. Well, as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, I want to build on this idea of the Sabbath and bring in another scriptural concept. Because when we're thinking about platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, so much of it is about cultivating an image and cultivating in some ways the perfect image or the perfected image or the sanitized image. And Amy, at several points during the book, My TechWise Life, you contrast that social media image with a different image, the Imago Dei, the image of God that every mm-hmm. creature of God, every human bears within themselves. And I'd love for you to reflect with me and my listeners for a moment on this conflict contrast. I don't even know the right word to use Mm -hmm. between this cultivated social media image and the image of God that we're all gifted with. Yes, absolutely. As a Christian, I believe this kind of incredible and strange and mysterious thing, which is that somehow every human is created in God's image. And I think the reason that social media is so popular is because the image has been broken. Again, as a Christian, I believe that we have all been marred by sin and that our bearing of God's image has been broken and made far more difficult. And what social media allows us to do is it acknowledges that there's something wrong with us 
And then it says, you can make your image what you want it to be. So everyone knows that I know that I am not bearing the image of God the way that I want to be. And social media gives me the opportunity to create a person who I think is who I should be. It's the person who appeals to my peers and my friends, the people who follow me. It's a person who's devoid of whatever I feel is uncool or unfashionable. And that is why social media is so powerful. But again, as a Christian, I think that ultimately fails because it will never be true. The image that you create, however beautiful, however cool or vulnerable in the right way it is, that will never actually be who you are. And you will still know that deep down you are imperfect and you are broken. The promise of the Christian faith is that there is actually a way that the image can be restored, that the image has been restored, that there has been someone who has had the perfect image, who has borne it perfectly, and that is Jesus, and that through his being the image of the invisible God, he holds out to us the promise that we mysteriously and astonishingly can be made perfect and new and whole. And Andy, I want to turn that question around with you. (laughs) I'm a parent. You're a parent. And when I look at my children, when you look at your children, we have an image in our mind of what we hope that they'll be. Let's just be honest. We do. And I'm wondering, as parents, what can we do to get that image out of the way, that desire for perfection and for cleaning them them up? What can we do to get that image out of the way to really see our children as the image of God that God intends them to be, not as the image that we intend them to be? Wow. That is the very profound and challenging work of being a parent, and I don't know that I've always done it very well. But I guess I'm thinking about the way that all real resilience and trust in human relationships comes from rupture and repair. It's when things go wrong and then we rebuild after things have gone wrong. And in some ways, the image that people construct for themselves, whether it's the beautiful person on Instagram or the always right person on Twitter, you know, or the always informed person on Facebook, is a compensation for our underlying awareness that we're actually way more complicated than that, way less perfect than that, and we've fallen short in some way. And I think the unique thing we get to do in family, and it happens between parents and children, it happens between spouses, it happens in both directions as children grow up, that is, it's not just in one direction from parents to children, is actually the chance to mess up, (laughs) to rupture that perfect simulation and see the truth, and then to repair, and to forgive, and trust, and keep loving. And I've tried to do that as a father. My children have also had to do that for me, especially once they came of age and could see past the sort of child's imagination of what daddy's like. (laughs) And that's a big part of what family is for, I think, is to give us that primary context where we are seen and known, including in very broken moments of great disappointment to ourselves and others and and we're still loved that's that's the work <laughs> that's the work and technology i really it's good for a lot of things but it just doesn't help with that primary thing and and that's what we're here for 
Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch, I have so enjoyed this conversation and I hope it's been clear from my questions that your book, My TechWise Life, just raised all of these things for me that I wanted to talk about. And we've only begun to scratch the surface and I encourage my listeners to pick up this book because it's really a treasure trove, not only about faith and about technology and the interface of the two, but also about parenting and wise living. I hope that you keep writing books because I'd love the both of you to come back and talk to me more because I've got a lot more that I want to ask you. But thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation conversation today. Thank you, David. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch. Amy is a student at Cornell University studying linguistics, English, and anything else she can fit into her schedule. Andy Crouch is an author, speaker, and musician, and also Amy's father, whose work focuses on culture, creativity, and the gospel. Today, we've been talking about their recent book, My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.